Back in 1990, do you remember that far ago? Back in 1990, when Larry King was really one of the, on the rise as the best interviewer in the country, the 56-year-old then was himself the topic of a piece in the LA Times. The article was to announce his newest show, which we all know now as Larry King Live, and it would soon become the most watched news report and variety show that his network had ever produced. But in this 1990 article, he was drilled about some of the more important and difficult interviews that he had conducted throughout his professional life. He was quick to answer most questions, but in closing, when the journalist asked him who his fantasy interview would be, King didn't bite an eyelash, he blurted out the name Jesus Christ. He answered it so quickly that it was evident that he had thought about this question long and hard before. And the interviewer didn't have to press hard for him to elaborate. He quickly responded by saying, I would ask him if he believed that he was born of the virgin. Because whatever the answer is, changes or reinforces the world. I've thought about that long and hard, about that answer and his reasoning why he would ask that question. Obviously, it betrays a cynicism about the authority of Scripture. He doesn't feel as though he can open the Bible and and really see for himself. He would want to hear it from the lips of Jesus himself. And I think it even opens the door to Larry King about questions concerning Jesus' sanity. It's amazing to me that he would ask about the virgin birth. Clearly, I mean, that's a difficult pill for a skeptic to swallow that a man was born of a virgin. I get it. But when you line up all the other claims and records of Jesus' life, you would think that the question would be, did you really rise from the dead? Would be first and foremost. If you're like the Minter household, um, just about every time we open our Bibles in the evening for our family devotions, we close them with more questions than we started family devotions with. And we try to work through some of the more tough questions, but then eventually one of the girls would just say, add it to the list of questions that we have to ask God someday, as if that's the answer to all the difficult questions. And recently Naomi said, we really need to start writing these down because I don't even remember all the questions that I'm supposed to ask him uh, one day. It's an interesting thought that Larry King had 30 years ago. His question focused on the virgin birth. How about you? What would you ask Jesus? Our questions would probably range from the existential existential, to the very personal, accusing, sincere, playful, serious, theological, practical. On one hand, one of us might ask, what did it feel like to walk on water? That had been awesome. Another might ask him to explain the Trinity. And when eternity is over, you finally understand it after he explains it all. One might ask him to describe the wine that he miraculously made from water, while another might lob questions about a a seeming maniacal and genocidal God of the Old Testament who willed that whole nations be slaughtered by the children of Israel in battle. One might ask about the historical details of his life. And another in our pews might ask him, if you're God, 
Where were you when my wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer? That's probably where the majority of our questions would center, honestly. Again, many of of those would be on the spectrum of accusing to sincere, angry, and, and truly searching. Perhaps because of something, perhaps you are here this morning and And the question is so preposterous because you have doubts about, is Jesus of Nazareth, was he even a real historical person? That's a great question. I cannot give you the full answer to that because it's a lifelong study of discovery that you have to journey on on your own. But let me just give you a brief word from a self-proclaimed skeptic, non-Christian, first century historian, Bart Ehrman. It's certainly not the nail in the coffin answer to your question, but it might at least start the conversation for you. Ehrman once said, there is so much evidence that Jesus existed. This is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. There is no scholar in any college or or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, or any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. He is abundantly attested in early sources. Some of you have come to an Easter Sunday service and you are incredibly skeptical about the whole thing, and your questions center on, did he even exist? 2,000 years have passed. Was he even a real character? We're not given the ability to really interview Jesus as many of us would like. But it just so happens that two millennia ago, there was a Roman political official who woke up one morning to a gaggle of priests and Pharisees on his palace doorstep. And they were all thrusting forth an already bloodied and bruised human being for him to interview and ultimately condemn. And before we dive into the text that we've already read in John 18, I want to catch you up to speed very quickly For three and a half years, Jesus of Nazareth has been traveling all around the general vicinity of his hometown, Nazareth. According to the Bible, his ministry never took him over 70 miles away from Galilee. But in his travels, he taught some amazing truths, he performed some miraculous deeds, and he confronted the abusive religious leaders of his day, particularly the chief priests and Pharisees. His claim that he was from God, the Son of God, and equal to the Father, it fast-tracked those religious leaders into devising a plan to have him slaughtered. Just the night before, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had bought the allegiance of one of Jesus' friends, Judas Iscariot. And he had in turn walked them into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and his disciples were camping out for the night. And this detachment of temple guards arrested Jesus and took him at midnight to a trial that had been prearranged by those who hated his message. When Jesus is interviewed about certain points of his teaching, the judge and jury erupt in anger this first trial and they tear their clothes, and they tear his clothes from off his back, and they slap him in the face repeatedly, and they beat him with wooden sticks. Ultimately, 
This first court, the Jewish court, they would level the sentence of death upon him, but in their shrewd planning, they want him to be killed by the Romans so they don't get any of the the crowd's outrage against them for the deed. And also, I think they particularly want Jesus to suffer the Romans' specific form of capital punishment. Had they killed him, which they would later have no problem doing with all of the Christ followers, they would have stoned Jesus, cast him down, and thrown, and thrown stones at him. But if Rome killed Jesus, they would crucify him. They would raise him up and would only help their argument that Jesus was not the Messiah because Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So to the early Pharisees, they they thought this is the best of both worlds. We'll get Jesus gone, and it'll be the Romans' fault, and it will prove to all the Jews around he couldn't be the Messiah because Deuteronomy says he was cursed. Now we believe it's probably around 6 a.m. at this point. In John 18, 28 when the chief priests and Pharisees led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium early morning. But they themselves didn't go into the praetorium, into the governor's palace, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Get this. They stand outside Pilate's residence, out there on his steps, because later... They want to participate in one of the most sacred religious rituals of their calendar year, Passover, which had been centuries old, speaking back to that time in Exodus when the the death angel passed over certain of those who claimed the blood of a lamb. They feel, although there's no Levitical law which makes such a claim, that they would defile their holy bodies if they even walk on Pilate's lawn. And so they stay outside. They throw the man in front of them that they want murdered on Pilate's steps. They're trying to stay a safe distance away so that they might not be defiled. Just think of the hypocrisy of it all. Murder this man so that we can go worship tomorrow. I think they have to hide Jesus' blood splatter from off their coats that they've already slapped and beaten them with themselves. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? That's a reasonable enough first question to begin a trial. Would you agree? What's the accusation here? What's the charge? But you can hear the contempt in the chief priest's voices as they scream back in verse 30. If he were not an evildoer, would we have not delivered him up to you? That answer alone ought to underline that the Pharisees and priests, they did not want justice done. They wanted Jesus dead and gone. It's almost like they felt they could leave Jesus on Pilate's doorstep, have him exterminated with no questions asked And their reply sheds light on the strain between these two parties, the leaders of Rome in this area, particularly Pilate, and the Jews. I don't have time to go into it, and some of you might get bored by it, but historians tell us that Pilate and the Jewish leaders have already had two extra-biblical run-ins similar to this one. 
Pilate is skating on thin ice with Rome. On both of those occasions that had happened prior to this, Pilate acted brashly, thinking that he had Caesar's blessing on all that he could do to run the region. Both events have ended in a shameful and public scolding of Pilate by his higher-ups. So the Jewish leaders, they really feel like they can coerce Pilate into doing their dirty work. And you hear their attitude, don't you? If he were not an evildoer, would we not have delivered him up to you? On one side, I read them answering like teenagers, complete with, duh, and an eye roll behind his back. On the other, I read this like fake surprised victim of, do you really think we would do that to you, Pilate? Yeah, I think you would do that to me. However it was said, Pilate's not interested in playing their games, especially not before coffee, so he dismisses them You take him, judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. The Jewish leaders in this, they cite a Roman law which prohibited them from killing anyone, which again shows that they're really interested in no trial by Pilate, but condemnation. And number two, this is a law that the Jews only sometimes abide by when it's politically expedient for them. And here, it doesn't seem to be the case. So Jesus is left at Pilate's residence. And I believe the next few verses happen one-on-one. There might be a guard or two present, but I don't read this as a public trial, but as a private interview between the king and the governor. What questions will Pilate ask King Jesus? Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him in verse 33, the first question, are you the king of the Jews? This was the accusation stated in other gospel records. The Jews wanted Jesus killed because of blasphemy. Namely, that he said that he was the Son of God, equal to the Father. Which, if that was not the truth, it would have been blasphemy. But the Jews knew that Rome did not indict or really doom for some petty other religious contention about claiming to be a god. So they skewed the accusation and moved that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. If he claimed to be God, it's not that far to say that he claimed to be the king. And so Pilate cuts to the heart of the investigation. He puts it all out in the open. He clears the air. Jesus, what do you have to say about this accusation? Are you who they say that you say you are? Are you the king of the Jews? Well, maddeningly for Pilate, Jesus doesn't give a straight answer. He does the unthinkable. He reverses the roles. He puts Pilate in the witness box, and instead of answering the question, he asks a question in return. In verse 34, he answers him, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Hear me. Oh, that's the introduction. We've come to the point. I want you to really listen. Are you speaking for yourself, Pilate, about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? I want to be true to the text. 
Some might accuse me of spiritualizing here, but I really see some hints of Jesus witnessing to Pilate in this question. Legally, it's a point of clarification, almost as if Jesus is saying, let's define the role king here. I'm not interested in a political position, if that's what you're talking about. But in other ways, I read a whole lot of, Pilate, do you really want to know who I am? Are you asking this? Or are you just going through the letter of the law, asking the questions that you know you have to ask to expedite the process to have me killed? Are you asking this question, or are you just parroting what someone else has told you to say? Let me tell you, you had better answer that question for yourself someday, and hopefully today. Who is Jesus? I'm not asking what you've been told to ask. I'm not asking, are you parroting? Are you saying all the right things? I'm asking you, in your words, who is Jesus? He's standing right in front of us in the text. Are you satisfied about what other people have said about Jesus? Or are you sincerely wanting to know him? Here's the thing. All throughout Scripture, we have example after example of people who knew him. And they didn't have to ask secondary and tertiary questions to Jesus. Adam agrees that Jesus was the better man. Eve expects him as the man from God. Noah names him as his savior. Abraham underlines that he was the covenant keeper. Jacob wrestles with him until he recognized him as the blessing giver. Joseph experiences his good working for him. Moses sees him as the, both the lawgiver and the sinless law abider. Joshua claims him as his banner. Rahab answers, he's my rescue. Ruth calls him my kinsman redeemer. David heralds him as Lord. Solomon answers he is all wise. Isaiah sees him high and lifted up. Jeremiah experiences his help from the pit. Ezekiel views his life-giving power. Daniel feels his presence in the pit. The three Hebrew boys march with him in the fire. Hosea knows him to be faithful. Jonah gets second chances from him. Malachi sees the sun rising. Who are you, Jesus? Mary would have said, he's my boy and he's my savior. Peter would have answered, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. To Thomas, he's the one crucified and risen, standing in front of him. To Lazarus, he was the very breath of life. Mary Magdalene with the seven demons would have called him deliverer. Stephen answered and said, he is the one worthy of dying for. Paul trusted him as the Messiah for both the Jews and the Gentiles. And John closes the book by calling him Alpha and Omega. Who are you, Jesus, is the question. And Jesus answers him. Do you really want to know? Is this a question of sincerity? Am I the king of the Jews? Are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate obfuscates like many of us do when we're hit hard with a question like that about our sincerity. And he stammers out a second question. Not this first part in verse 35, but at the very end. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. Question number two. What have 
you done? What have you done? What has Jesus done? Pilate, call the witnesses. Bring them in one by one. Put them on the stand. Let blind Bartimaeus open your eyes. Let the woman caught in adultery testify about how he raised her from the dust. Let the court recognize a young boy with a lunchbox in hand. Allow a single mother to testify about how Jesus raised her boy to life. Get out of the way and let the cripple man leap up on the stand. Zacchaeus would like to enter his tax records for evidence. Lepers offer their smooth skin and restore families as a testimony. Jairus wants to tell you about how his 12-year-old daughter was dead in her room, and Jesus walks in, and he said, Talitha kumi, little lamb, rise, and she rose. A man with dozens of scars all over his body from self-inflicted wounds wants to preach a sermon about how Jesus had him sit down, clothed, and in the right mind. What has Jesus done? Pilate, your stenographer doesn't have the strength. The earth cannot produce enough trees for the paper. No library could contain the amount of books that would be written if Jesus were to have fully answered that question. What has Jesus done? We don't have time to talk about what Jesus has done in this very room. Donnie, what happened to you 23 years ago on an Easter Sunday, Donnie? What happened, brother? Brother Tom, how has he proven himself over and over and over again to you? Testify about the change that has been made in your single mother's home, David. Lynn, take us to the drug dealer in Jamaica who now owns a Bible showing him all that Jesus has done. Rach, tell him about how we first realized what grace really was. Shannon could take us to a group of Japanese Christians who are meeting today, placing a flower and a cross, each telling them their story about how Jesus changed their lives. Chris, you could preach a whole sermon about what God is doing in your life. Brother Charles could tell us about how a bullet in an in Alaskan outback got him to get back on track with God. Mrs. Faye would remind us that the Lord used a VBS here at New Hope decades ago to win she and her husband to the Lord for the kingdom and set him to preach for the next several decades for the rest of his life until the Lord called him home. What has he done? Pilate, you can't handle the answer to that question. What have you done, Jesus? Amen. Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. It's almost as if Jesus spares Pilate the long answer and he just says, you, would, you wouldn't understand. My kingdom is not of this world world. People healed, families restored, lives given purpose, souls saved. Pilate, he sees kingship as something to protect and win by conquering. Jesus sees kingship as who he is. Why debate what you are? 
Pilate turns on his heels in a gotcha moment. He thinks he's, he's just caught Jesus, trapped him into some revealing testimony about himself. And so he says in verse 37, are you a king then? Jesus has just said, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. There's a lot in that answer. And in Pilate's eyes, with that answer, Jesus condemns himself. So he is a king. Friend, don't listen to anyone who claims that Jesus never called himself God. The Gospel of John is replete with this singular point that Jesus claimed to be God. But if some, for some reason they need further evidence of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke's record of this account is so similar that Pilate asks, are you the Christ, the King of the Jews? And there Jesus answers, it is as you say. He claims to be God. Christ the one sent from God. John continues Jesus' testimony by relaying the rest of what he says. For this cause I was born, that's purpose, everyone has purpose. For this cause I have come into the world, that's mission. Why would Jesus respond so strangely about talking about being born and coming into the world? We don't, we don't say that at our birthday celebrations. We don't say, I came into this world 36 years ago on December 18th. That's weird if you say it that way. Jesus says, for this cause I was born and for this reason I have entered this world. He's underlining the fact that his birth was not the beginning, but he was sent by the Father with a specific mission to accomplish. And here Jesus gives that mission in a broad sense. And he says that I should bear witness of the truth. I have come to bear witness of the truth. And Pilate asks him his third question in verse 38. What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. There's an interesting turn in the original text that's really hard for English translators to lay out with some pretty major commentary. Essentially, when Jesus says that he has been sent to bear witness of the truth, he's using a first century idiom that he was saying that he was born of or he was existent in truth. That's what makes Pilate, his snarky third question, all the more maddening. What is truth? What is truth is the wrong question. Jesus has just said, I am existent from truth or in truth. He ought not be asking what is truth. Pilate should be asking who is truth. Because Pilate has truth standing in front of his very eyes, beaten and bruised. But he asks the question, and he walks away. He doesn't even wait for the answer. What is truth? And he leaves, and he talks to the Jews. 
what would Jesus have responded? Pilate, this is your most important question in your interview with the king, and you walk away. You'll never know. Hear me on this point. This is the most important issue of the whole sermon. Do not walk away today. Go eat your ham, run your Easter egg hunt, and all the other stuff that we do without coming to grips with who Jesus is, what Jesus done, and what he wants to do for you and in you. If you would just flip over just a few pages in your copy of the Gospel of John, you'd find Jesus sitting there among his disciples in the upper room just a few hours earlier before he's arrested, and he makes some spectacular exclusionary statements in John 14, verse 6. He says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Your only hope of getting to God or receiving your eternal, eternal life or gaining heaven or obtaining real life is Jesus. Jesus is claiming the way, the truth, the life. He is not an optional way. He is not an alternative truth. He is not a possible life. His answer comes in response to Thomas asking how they can know the way to paradise. And Jesus, his response could be rendered, I am that way. I am that truth. I am that life. That is the only way that you will gain any of those. Friend, I'm telling you here this morning, if you are hoping or trusting in anything or anyone outside of Jesus Christ, you have not the way, the truth, the life. You have a dead end, you have a lie, and you have hell in front of you. And I am pleading with you to see him for who he is. If you're not careful, you'll walk out of these doors today just like Pilate. Sure, you might leave, you might be thinking differently. You might alter your thinking a little bit. You might sacrifice some stuff in your life. You know, Corey mentioned some things about that, some things in my life that aren't good. So maybe I need to change or tweak that about my life. Maybe, maybe I really should get to church more often. And you might try to offer up some proverbial Barabbas as some kind of sacrifice in your life as a sign of good faith. That, yeah, I kind of like what this has to say. But ultimately, you'll walk out these doors and you will wash your hands of Jesus. Let me tell you, there is no soap, there is no chemical known to man that can scrub that kind of guilt from off your hands. We are the ones responsible for the death of Jesus. You and me. You can't get them out of your head can't get them off of your hands. So don't wash your hands of him like Pilate saying, I'm not guilty of it. This is somebody else's problem. I am asking you to plunge headlong into the blood of Christ and be washed by that. Miss Pam is going to make her way to the piano and I want you to take your hymn book and turn to number 175. I tell this story often here at New Hope, so for those of you who are here week after week, you know it. But if you're new, 
You might not ever have heard this before. There was a man by the name of William Cowper in the 1700s. Cowper is an interesting figure in history. He both claimed Christ, but had severe, severe emotional disorders, which drove him to three different times trying to take his life. Once by drowning, a second time by hanging, and a third time by drinking poison. And each time, he was miraculously saved, his life preserved. All the while, believing to be a Christian, loving the Lord, but thrown into depths of such darkness that I don't know that many of us could really understand, although I have an idea in this group, a number here today, there might be some who've contemplated something like that. Cowper's friends loved him, although they were frustrated with him. And so eventually, as 1700s medicine would allow, they put him in an insane asylum, not necessarily to cure him in their thinking, but to at least get him a 24-7 watch over him to make sure that this wouldn't happen again. And it's there that this poet slash madman, in his own way of saying it, penned the words, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You have two options here this morning. Two options. You can either walk away having washed your hands with water like Pilate. Not my fault. His death be on your heads. I'm not guilty. I'll wash my hands of it, this symbolic thing. Or you could cop to it. You could recognize the sin in your life. And you could confess your fault to the Lord. Agree with Him. Say the same thing about your sin as He says. And in so doing, repent of your sin. Turn from it. And follow after Christ. Forsake this old life. And cling only to Him. And He will take you. And He will plunge you beneath the cleansing flood of His blood. I know it sounds strange, but it's scriptural. And He will truly wash you in his blood you've got two options don't be the first don't walk out with wet hands when you could have a clean soul this morning there's a fountain that is filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.